Hello and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, back from Greece, she took a car, tandem bike, boat, rocket, camper, snowmobile, roller skates, and a motorcycle off a mound over a mushroom cloud through the train window onto this podcast. It is Danielle Hanley. Oh my God. That was honestly the greatest summation of all of the like, ridiculousness of what this episode will be and all, and also what our experience was like in one intro. Absolutely. I threatened Danielle with we were just going to do 10 minutes back and forth of giving each other intros or 10 hours. I don't remember. Who I can de- say? I deeply refuse this. Like, <laughs> like you're welcome listeners. I deeply refuse this. Danielle, you're back. We're back. I'm back. We're back. Uh, cinema's back baby the movies are back (laughs) as our favorite movie podcasters say absolutely um how was Greece? i know but what did what do the (laughs) listeners need to know Greece was good um got a lot of research done um walked a lot athens is a very walkable city i'm feeling like lucky to not be there currently because it's like kind of crazy and also I was supposed to be in Rhodes right now which is like where everything is getting really crazy so yeah but Greece was good I have been really enjoying you and Regan on <laughs> uh, so podcast yeah even though I deeply hate everything of uh, all of the subject matter uh-huh. <laughs> like the, the the Christianity of it all uh-huh yeah <laughs> but fair. you and Regan are like I just feel like so it's so fun to log in on Thursdays and listen to those episodes so I Thank really you. appreciate you guys doing it that's very kind of you to say I would like to inform you um I meant to tell you this before we started recording but we'll just do it now uh that Regan today found out that one of our colleagues here at SUNY Plattsburgh does a Danielle where she is listening to the pod without having watched the young Pope. I mean, same. I yeah, also have exactly. not watched the young Pope this, and I'm also listening to the pod. <laughs> that's a classic Danielle move. So we love that. What was um, Regan's response to it? Uh, to Regan <laughs> was not as um, confused about that as your sisters or me <laughs> for you. I'm at home, right? I'm at my parents right now. And my sister was literally like, have you seen the things you're about to podcast about. <laughs> and I was like, I only listen to podcasts. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't uh, seen the show for. I don't participate in podcasts that I haven't seen uh-huh. the thing for. Interesting. The listeners should know that I went straight. I had like a 20 minute break straight from recording a, a podcast with Regan to this. So that's the energy that I'm bringing is an hour and a half of talking about Pope Lenny. John is like really on one right now. And I (laughs) spent the morning at the beach reading about Uh affect theory and Mm -hmm. like running errands and eating bagels on Long Island. (laughs) That's also a good energy to bring you. Your profession was beach. My profession was literally beach. (laughs) I, I sent that text. I didn't send it to you, but I sent it to multiple people today. <laughs> Don't worry. I officially sent John Keller, who, as of a couple of days ago, had yet to see either any of the movies we were about to talk about, uh, a joke about him being a professional at Beach, but only on Cape Cod. <laughs> um, I also have really been enjoying, like, Classics Twitter has really gotten into the, like, Barbie situation. Um, and you know, when you and I were on the train and we'll talk about our whole experience in a minute, but like when you and I were on the train, I was like, I turned to you after roughly 18 hours of (laughs) existing together and was was like, 
Barbie is my Iliad. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, I want to inform you that like classics Twitter slash classics X, whatever it's called these days. Classics Twitter. (laughs) Classics Twitter is like very into the like Barbie Iliad like overlap so much so that I saw last night I saw um, that I guess like, Alan was marketed as Ken's buddy. And so there's like a lot of discourse, like, okay, like what is a buddy? Like very homoerotic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so now classics Twitter has picked that up and was like, yeah, Patroclus was also uh, Achilles' <laughs> buddy. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really here for all of it. I'm it's, here for so much of it. It's a great reading. Um, so we're going to talk about some movies today. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should say what we're going to uh, do. It's in the episode title. So <sighs> we're going to talk about Barbie Oppenheimer, Mission Impossible. Danielle, how it, we think it's important to set the scene. Yeah. Um, Danielle and I, like, obviously podcasting all the time, talking all the time, texting all the time about podcasts often enough, which is, you know, is, a, is a questionable choice. Uh, but we <laughs> haven't seen each other in person since last October? October, when we recorded the first episode of American Season 3 together. In a car. From from your car. um, (laughs) And got tattoos. Yes. Uh, So, Danielle and I had a glorious reunion last weekend. Yeah, John came down to, John came down to Worcester, which I guess is down from you, right? It is, it is. Upstate, over. Sure. Uh, John came down from Worcester. A grueling drive, honestly. It's like a million hours, and it was worse because of traffic. I, yeah, it was, it was bad. Like, you know, between Albany and Lee, Massachusetts was a nightmare. Ooh, gross. We went to, I I would call it a budget theater for <laughs> the, for the Mission Impossible showing because, so John got in to Worcester on Thursday and so we're like, okay, we'll see Mission Impossible. It had been out for like a little while. A week, but yeah. But I <laughs> like look up movie times and it's not playing at any of the theaters I normally go to, you know, the like Star Pass or or like Cinemark, like it's not playing at any of those because Oppenheimer and Barbie are just only playing on all the screens. Yeah. So, you know, looked up the budget theater. It's in a parking lot with a Walmart. It's across the street from a Dairy Queen. There's something very like old school about the entire situation. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to pay with a credit card. <laughs> like, <laughs> So we go see Mission Impossible in with like a couple a, of dads. With a couple of dads who did not have the same like humor <laughs> level as we did. <laughs> Correct. And also seats that were like, I'm pretty short, and I like couldn't my feet like couldn't reach the ground because of the weird angle of these seats. It was a budget experience. The angle was suboptimal of the seats. But I will say the tickets for a 7 p.m. showing were $9, which Can't like I'm not sure. I think that's the price of, of tickets in Greece, you know, which is like the economy, I think, is crumbling. So sure. it's a different story. So we see Mission Impossible on Thursday night. Grand Ridic- old time. Grand old time. We're laughing. Lots of jokes like grand old time. And then we go into Boston on uh, Friday in order to see Barbie and Oppenheimer together. And we also smashed in some like friend time with other friends of ours that neither John or I have yeah. seen. A deep, um, a deep conversation in Boston common on a park deep bench. Conversation on a park bench. And then like zip zaps up. We were <laughs> back in the theater for Oppenheimer, for Oppenheimer on, on IMAX. IMAX. Yeah. 70 millimeter. I don't, I don't think know. so. <laughs> I have no idea. 
I honestly, I said this to you before we went, and I was saying this to my little sister Tori uh, earlier today. Like, maybe saw it on 70 millimeter, maybe didn't. Definitely saw it on, on an IMAX screen, but I could not tell you any of the differences in any of these things. Yeah. Like, the experience of seeing Oppenheimer to me was no different than the experience of seeing Barbie, which we saw in the same theater, but not on the same kind of screen. Like, I do not have a Letterboxd account, but let me pretend I do for the next 30 seconds. Please. I think the sound situation would not have worked as well in a non-IMAX for Oppenheimer. That's my take. Okay. Okay. Like, it the, like, wouldn't have been as, uh, yeah. like, all-consuming. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure and I'm sure it looks great on 70 millimeter IMAX. We saw it at regular old IMAX. Danielle, like our hero, did some a lot of planning, some advanced scouting, bought all our tickets ahead of time. Like, you know, what a what a hero. Listen, I'm nothing if not a planner. <laughs> I made us plan this podcast more than I think both of us wanted to today. <laughs> Deeply appreciate the planning uh, of Danielle. So yeah, and so then we got out, realized we missed the train <sighs> we thought we were gonna take. Uh, torrential downpour and lightning storm in Boston. Train is late. So we got back to Worcester 1.30 a.m., something oh like that. God. Train station is closed. We have to hike around. The train station being closed, I was driving by there yesterday, and I was like, I'm just, it, the power went out at the train station. Um, not yesterday, but the day before. So like they just closed the train station. I was like, oh, kind of like they did when we tried to get back in there and like <laughs> go to our car. Okay. <laughs> so it was, it was, I think we counted like 16 straight hours. Oh, it was just a like lot. Hanging it was out. a long day. Yeah. Listen, great gladly, day. Best day. Gladly we'll hang out with you for 16 hours. Yeah. But like, I'm not really trying to do anything for 16 hours. <laughs> with other people, no less. With, uh, with other people. Yeah. It was also the Boston of it all. I like hadn't anticipated that being tiring. And that was for both of us very tiring. <laughs> Look, the intention, so obviously this is coming out whenever this is coming out. Uh, we haven't decided that yeah. quite yet. But, you know, we saw this a long time, a long time ago, not that long ago. The intention was wake up the next day. Uh, I had, I was leaving to go visit family. Danielle had a meeting um, or a call with friends. Yeah. And so it's like, all right, we will get up. We will have some food. We will record a podcast. And then I slept until noon, which I haven't done in approximately 15 years. Listen, I slept till 1030, which is like all, which is the like Danielle's version of noon. Yeah. My um, version of noon is like 7 a.m. I know. I was, like, <laughs> I was just going to say, I feel like your version of noon is like 630. I feel it. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, oh, you can text me in the morning. I'm up early. And you're like, it's inappropriate how early I'm awake. <laughs> So that was that was our weekend, which we are affectionately calling Total Cinema Baby in an homage. In a deep homage to uh, Big Pick. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that didn't know that, please listen to The Big Picture. We love that podcast. We do. Uh, actually, like, honestly, this podcast is basically, I think, just a conversation one-sided between us and The Big Picture. Like... <laughs> Because Danielle and I, like, have we talked about the movies, obviously, as we were going about our bopping around Boston and Worcester. Um, we've exchanged jokes and texts and we've been on a call together this week already. But, like, my main engagement of preparation for this pod has been thinking about these movies since we saw them a week ago and listening to, like, 79 hours of podcasts about <laughs> them. I think all of them the big picture hours. 
I listen to more than just the big picture, but um, also we could throw the watch in there. You listen yeah, to the watch episode on it. I listen to the watch episode on it. Yeah. Um, I've listened to some other stuff, but I wouldn't call that preparation. I would call that um, like enemy scouting. No, just kidding. Inter- interlocution. <laughs> okay. Obviously, this is a slightly different episode than uh, what we usually have going on. So instead of our typical segments, one of the things that we will do is sort of work through Barbie, Oppenheimer, and Mission Impossible, give you our thoughts, our jokes, like stuff we liked. Um, At the end of the episode, just like our regular episodes, we'll come to the cave. Uh, maybe trying to like pull some threads together Great. like the political theorists in all of us. Yeah. That's that, that's the moment I was going for with that intro it was extremely well thought out. Cause I was like, Oh, we're going to tie all the movies together at the end of the podcast. So if I do an intro for Danielle that tries to do the same, then it's great full circle moment. I really thought that deeply. We love a full circle moment, thought out or not. <laughs> <laughs> Accidental, better than planned. Stumble into, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think before we get into the movies themselves, you have uh, a game slash challenge that you find it important that we uh, that you lay out for us. Yes. So I think we're going to take the each movie, movie by movie, like I said. Good starting with Starting with Barbie, then going to Oppenheimer, then Mission Impossible. But I would like to challenge mostly John, but I'll challenge myself too, wow. even though I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days, uh, to think about what is one scene from this movie that we could put in to one of the other movies or one scene from another movie that we could put into this movie. So like, is there a scene in Mission Impossible that we could like smash cut into Barbie and like you know, it doesn't have to be coherent or cohesive. Like it can be like as ridiculous as the challenge Great. itself. I love this. I feel like Danielle is trying to make this a, yet another ringer podcast called <laughs> the rewatchables with Listen, this segment. I'm, I also love the rewatchables. We will not be talking about apex mountains. Cause I'm still not sure. I understand that. I um, <laughs> am opposed to the concept. Um, yeah. So because you don't believe in apexes. It's probably true. I don't know what that means, but I'm, I'll accept it. Uh, so spoilers for all three of these movies. Oh, my God. The most spoilers for all of these movies. We're not going to be able to. I I will say um, on the big pic, Sean and Amanda did have like a full conversation where they didn't. They really didn't do spoilers. I was really impressed. I could not. It was still a really good conversation. Yeah. I could not believe it. Yeah, absolutely. No way. Oh, my God. But yeah. So spoilers for all three of these movies. Also, go see them. We had a good time at all of them. The movies yeah. are back. <laughs> I think our official recommendation is to do Barbie and Oppenheimer as a double feature with a break in between where you go touch grass. Correct? That's the official recommendation yeah, of I Not think, Quite Great Books? Yeah, definitely the touching grass part. Um, I don't know. Two movies in one day was a lot for me. Uh, so if two movies in one day feels like too much for you, see Barbie first and then see Oppenheimer the next day. As the more Martinet among the two of us about aesthetics, I will not tolerate that and insist that you do them both in the same day. Weird. John like <laughs> got ideological about a position about, about pop culture. Yeah, <laughs> Who suspected never, that? <laughs> it's never happened before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so should we get started with talking about Barbie? Yes. Start us off, man. No, no, I think that it's only appropriate that the Kens not start this one. (laughs) 
Would you characterize yourself as a Ken? Oh my God, Danielle. How many of the jokes at the Ken's expense directly targeted and pierced my soul? All of them. Almost all of them. I mean, to be fair, you have never advocated to watch the Snyder Cut. Although... (laughs) Correct. Like... But I and I can't imagine a version of you that like would play the guitar in front of a fire on the beach and choose Matchbox 20 as your song. <laughs> this is I, true. I feel like you're more of an Alan. Um, I do. I did joke with, so I did some uh, investigative journalism for Barbie, <laughs> our conversation Amazing. today, where I had uh, myself and one of my other colleagues here had lunch with uh, a student who just graduated, um, who's uh, who was a law and justice social double major, okay. and a current student who's about to graduate this fall, who's a social GWS major. Okay. And like we saw them the day after they had seen Barbie, and uh, Gen Z approves on the basis of an, an N of two. So um, okay. I, if I can bring in their takes at all, I will, I will relay them. But I did, I did tell them that I identify as um, half Alan, half weird Barbie. I think that that's actually like perfectly correct i loved barbie i played with barbies growing up there was like so much and i was like listening to an interview with greta gerwig and like we're the same age and so like there is so much in this movie that like is exactly like my sweet spot that idea of like that the barbie you play with too hard becomes weird barbie is like we used to have a literal like bin of Barbies where like their legs were falling off or like we broke their legs or like their heads were like interchangeable. Um, I do want to shout out Joanna Robinson on the uh, big pick up Barbie episode where she talks about return to Oz and Mombi because like return to Oz is my favorite movie growing up and like switching heads of Barbies was like very much something that I did now. As a feminist, I, like, look back on that and I'm like, ooh, like, that was rough. And so, like, there are parts of this movie that were, you know, it's, like, trying to challenge and not always fully, and it's in on the joke, but, like, there's some part of the challenge that, like, falls away a little bit. Like, I've got some discomfort with that, but loved this movie so much. That's, like, where I am. Where are you? I had a great time with this movie. in the moment, like, laughed harder at this than I've laughed at a movie and I don't remember the last time, yeah. um, to be quite honest. Found it just such a thoughtful and intelligent and precise movie, right? Precise is a word that's been used in reviews yeah. in terms of the writing, in terms of the set design, in terms of the production design, in terms of the acting. Like, I think it's an appropriate word. Um, and, like, the sensibility of it aesthetically in the humor in the jokes in the politics is slightly more questionable love all of that and since watching it including like engaging with um responses to it i would say that like my appreciation of it has grown oh yeah and my skepticism of it has also grown at the same time in a true both and fashion listen what is this podcast if not searching for the both and of barbie oppenheimer and mission impossible yes (laughs) <laughs> yes. So I want to I want to go back to something you said though, and like you know, as a feminist, like would, would this is a simplistic question? Like, would we call this a feminist movie? Yeah, 
I think, yes, it is not always the particular brand of feminism that I aspire to, but it is it sees itself as a feminist movie. It I does. think it's presented as a feminist movie. The a lot of the jokes at the expense of the men are like in a feminist movie. Um, I think like something that I said to you and to our friends when we were having lunch after is like, I would show America Ferrara's um, monologue in my intro WGS class. And I would have my students sort of like think through like, what makes this monologue feminist if it is and also like what is it missing right because i think like if we think about barbie as a feminist text like we also get to think about what it's missing and yeah i think it's a i do think it's a feminist movie yeah so i joked to these two students that the next time i teach feminist political thought like maybe i should teach this movie and then they were both like enthusiastically yes you should do that which was interesting but i actually i think the move would be um, take America Ferrara's speech. And like, if it's a class and you're doing essays, like that's an essay prompt is respond to both the feminist qualities and what's missing from that speech, um, based yeah. on like course material. So that's a the pedagogical note among this. Um, I mean, I would say like for me, and I know we were going to hold off on the cave and I apologize to man. We're never really cave. holding um, off on the cave. Never, ever once. Um, and like, this is, this is a Bovar movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a phenomenology movie, including in the very like physical constrictions of a Barbie themselves and the way that Margot Robbie acts physically, mm-hmm. like the way that she moves and in some ways crucially doesn't or is unable to more to the point move her body, mm-hmm. um, I think as part of that. But then like the resolution in the third act or one of the first of the resolutions where like her and uh, Ryan Gosling can like have the like big, you know, resolution conversation yeah. is like, you could teach, you literally could teach that alongside parts of the second sex in terms of, you know, like I think one of the possibly feminist uh, movements within this film is to say that like insofar as, the self or the subject is attempting to define themselves through and or in opposition to and or against another, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. when that relationship is shot through with subordination and domination and restriction and yeah. a phenomenological and, and metaphysical sense. Like you're just fucked, right? Like that's just a system of pure oppression um, in a number of ways. And like, there are other places we could go with that um, as well. And then, like, in some ways, the speech that um, stereotypical Barbie gives to Ken, Ryan Mm -hmm. Gosling, Ken at the end, is a, like, self-definition outside of referring yourself in relation to us as Barbies in, like, a way that is shot through with relations of domination and subordination. Yeah, I mean, I think that all of that is right. I guess, like, the place that I would maybe want to take it not to undercut the Beauvoir of it all, but to like shift the frame a little bit is, yeah. And there's like a lot of other stuff going on. That's not just about like the, about self-definition. And that's, and that is at once like existing, like in and through these relations of oppression and also trying to like push against them. Right. So like, there's a lot of Beauvoir in this movie, but also like the entire montage where the Barbies are like one by one, like getting reintroduced to a kind of consciousness. Like to me, the collective activity of that is something like different than what Bovar is talking about. Yeah, It's not, not that too, mm-hmm. right? Because all of those things are also uh, like moments of, of like self-realization, but like it's, 
it's something else also. So like, I think there's like, there are like other kernels of like other forms of feminism, like within the movie too. But you know, the Beauvoir is like point taken. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also, I was um, texting with a friend a couple of days ago, uh, shouts to Brian, whom we listened to this about, um, about calling this movie Beauvoir land. So or calling the setting Beauvoir Land. So it's so funny that that's where your brain went. Like you said this to me during the movie, and like it's like you're right. It's it is all over it, but it's like Beauvoir is so not even my like first or tenth feminist reference. So like it wasn't where my brain was. Yeah. But again, it's like it's totally apt. Yeah. But I was like, oh yeah, I guess this is like, I get yeah, I guess all of this is like a hundred percent Beauvoir. But I like was not there. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I'm in some ways I'm doing the annoying thing that I've hated about some other responses is that like the only way we can judge this aesthetic product is like in a back referring it back to the political level. So like I kind of hate myself for asking is this a feminist movie question? Um, but let's like talk about it as a film. Like what are the things that stood out to you? What are the things that stood out to me? So like, listen, as a film, I think that Margot Robbie gives like a phenomenal performance. Yeah. Um, I was, I think, blown away by how seriously she takes Barbie, right? Like, this is, she she plays the character incredibly seriously. Like, she's the straight man in all of this, right? Like, she's not really making the jokes. The jokes are being made, like, around her. But, like, for the most part, like, she's the straight man. Um, like, in a, in a comedy. <laughs> in a comedy sense, not in a, <laughs> like, patriarchy sense. <laughs> Although, oh, now my brain is like broken. I think all the stuff with Ken is really funny, right? Like I think the, the, some of the commentary is like, this is a movie about Ken and like Ryan Gosling should be, should be nominated and like, da, 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 da. and then people are like, oh, but you're like seeing the wrong thing. And it's like, to your point about Beauvoir, about phenomenology, about like relation between self and other, like it can never only be about Barbie, right? Like it always has to be about all of these pieces like that, because that is how the world is constructed. Um, and so, yeah, I just like, I don't know. I'm just going to keep gushing. What are movie things Same. that you appreciated about this? I mean, the, the production design and set design to be very like, you know, this is yeah. the standard take about the movie, but that's the correct take about this movie is that like the, carefulness thoughtfulness and like sense of this is a built world that exists in some form or another is how does one conceptualize and how to or how do some conceptualize and how do some um then like implement into practice this vision of barbie land um from everything you know to the way that Barbies interact with the environment and mm-hmm. cans interact with the environment to how it all looks and what it's like both TV movie podcast world like lived in, but it's also like angles and flat surfaces and glossiness yeah. and the color and all of that, which I thought was like really impressive and cool. Um, like the topography of Barbie land was, I think fascinating the way that um, the way that the Barbies related to one another, like through space was just like so cool. Um, And I loved every part of it. Well, yeah. And I think like part of, so two things to just pull out, I was reading some interview that said that they designed like Barbie is like 
I don't know, I think it's 23% larger than all of the accessories, all of the things she's like using, right? So she's like bigger than the car. Like her proportions are are off when it comes to like the material objects that she's like, like the cup or the, the, the slide or the door or the house, right? Like she's too big for all of these things. And like, that was something that really hits like nostalgia buttons for me because like Barbie is too big for all of these accessories. Now we didn't really have any of the accessories, but like, I mean, like we had like clothes, but I didn't have like a, like a dream house or any of that. So I did somehow have a Corvette, like, and I wanted Barbie to be in the Corvette that I had, but she's like (laughs) too big for all of it. Right. And there's something really impressive about the, like, doing all of those calculations to, to like generate a world that aesthetically rings true to the experience that I had as a little girl that I wasn't even aware of when Mm. I was a little girl. But the minute I, I saw this in the interview, I was like, oh yeah, like she is kind of too big for her house or like she doesn't really fit in the car in the way that you and I sit in cars and have like room in the car to move around. And so that was like incredibly fascinating to sort of read about that and think back through the the movie. Yeah. And I'm also here thinking about the fact like we should note as Regan and I have started to do on the, on the Pope cast, like, you know, we're recording this amid the writer's strike and like after strikes and like, the writing and acting are so creative and so committed and so like full of bodily and artistic vision. Um, You know, that's, this is like a movie that demonstrates why like you should pay those people and not replace them with AI. Um, A hundred percent. Like no way I can write this movie or come up with this movie or create, you know, replicas of people to act in this movie. Even though it's like there is a certain extra humanity or inhumanity to Barbies and Kens and the way they move yeah. and the way they interact with the world, right? And like the entire cast like of the Barbies and the Kens just like fully, you know, killed it all around. Um, yeah. And Alan, of course. Alan, real champ. I'm really a champion for Alan these days. Yeah. I've, uh, so is, is Alan a queer, is Alan the queer character? This was the thing I was wondering while we were watching. I think so, but also, like, I think there's also probably a reading of, like, Barbie as a queer character, right? I mean, like, there's also a reading of uh, Ken, of Ryan Gosling, Ken, and Simu Liu Ken as, uh, like, having an orgasm together when they like, sparkly, uh, like, when they're f- fighting, quote-unquote, and there's, like, the sparkly explosion between them. So that's there, too. Uh, yeah, so, but, I, like, I think Alan is probably the most queer-coded of all of these. Yeah as the wonderful classics Twitter has really picked up on. Um, So another question for you, I mean, I, I think a lot of the discussion um, and this is a lot of discussion on the big picture in particular has centered on the kind of second act of the movie when Barbie and Ken are in the quote unquote real Mm -hmm. world. Um, How did you respond to that part of the, Listen, I, you know, this, our listeners, I'm sure know this, at at least if they've listened to our Marvel stuff, but like, I am much more forgiving of things like this than, than I think one than you are. And then I think most people are like, I'm at the movies to like, have a good time. And so if there's like, stuff in the second act that like, doesn't work great, like it, it takes a lot for it to really impact how I'm experiencing the movie. My hot take is that the second act is good too. (laughs) 
I honestly can't believe that you just I know said that. I know you get No, well that. I that's the thing like I I get the the criticisms but like it it has to be like this. Like the whole point is like it's wonky because like Barbie and Ken being in the real world is wonky. Like that's the whole thing. Like it's it's part of it. Now like I, I don't know. I I thought the, you know, the putting her in the back in the box, seeing the like the the ties twist and get tighter like that all felt actually like really clever. Yeah, I and I also I like the scene on the bench where Barbie is like, you're beautiful to the old lady. I was just like, I found it moving. Like maybe I'm just a chump and like love Barbie. I don't know. <laughs> you're not a chump, Danielle. I mean, the only thing that like didn't so much work for me is like, I'm on the, the Will Ferrell performance was meh train. I loved it. Um, Listen, slash the Mattel is- corporation scenes were meh. That gets to like my one kind of, one of my two like broader complaints about the movie as so, well. So. so like I, here's what, I agree that like of the Mattel stuff is, is probably like the lowest that the movie gets for me. But <laughs> Connor Swindell is like, he's the guy who comes in right like he's mm-hmm. the, the intern or like the guy in the cubicle like he's amazing and even though he has nothing to do i'm just like i will watch you do anything on screen so just be there thank you and will ferrell having like sparkly pink drumsticks which are a total non sequitur just like felt amazing to me like those those choices alone like do i think like maybe that like the stretch of them being in the real world like could have been a little bit shrunken down sure because i'm like mostly interested in the aesthetic of barbie land but like i will say like watching the mattel corporation folk like make their way to barbie land was like one of my fit where like they're on the tandem bike but it's all of them on one bike like that to me was just like oh this is the payoff of the joke right like because this is so ridiculous like yeah anyway Okay, do you want to do you want to talk about the things that didn't work for you? I had another question for you, but we oh, can yeah. get to that and we can get that in like one of the things that didn't work for me. The one thing that we haven't mentioned actually, I think before we get to maybe the things that I didn't love as much was the like opening scene 2001 Space Odyssey oh my God. um homage slash uh smashing of the dolls on the island and <sighs> stuff like and you know, obviously like that was in the trailer. And like it does tonally work 1000 million percent with the rest of the film to like prepare you as someone engaging with an aesthetic object to then continue to do so. I think it works perfectly in that regard. Um, And it was hilarious. And like, you know, who doesn't love a Kubrick? Again, I don't have a letterbox to count, but like who doesn't love a Kubrick uh, (laughs) homage uh, in their films? And I really enjoyed that. I said this to you after we saw the movie, but I was like, in those five minutes when the the like o- the opening scene is happening, the like Kubrick homage with a bo- with a Barbie doll, like, and the Barbie doll in that scene is like in the like old school, and first... is like thirty feet tall. Yeah. After that, I was like, this movie could be total trash, and that will have been worth it. Yes. And I think that does speak to something about this movie is that, I mean, you and I joked about this uh, 20,000 times in anticipation of hanging out and seeing these movies together was that we literally had no fucking clue what this None. movie was going to be. Zero. 
Yeah. I actually hadn't seen any of the trailers for Barbie. And I only saw an Oppenheimer trailer the night before when we saw Mission Impossible. <laughs> I had not seen any trailers for any of it. So I like went in not blind because like I like follow Simu Liu and Scott Evans and Shuti Gatwa. Oh, and Emma Mackie, but like she's not as active on Twitter. So like I had seen like stuff from the set. Yeah. Like before the strike started when they were like promoting mm-hmm. um but like beyond just like seeing images i really like didn't know anything about this movie yeah um so the two things that didn't work quite as well for me one like within the film itself and then one like my typical bullshit uh back on my bullshit complaints okay uh, the one in the film itself is that the like next to last scene of Ruth, uh, the inventor of Barbie yeah. and Margot Robbie's Barbie, who I guess becomes Barbara in that moment uh, or in that scene, like that didn't so much work for me. Um, even, a, even as the, like, she's kind of in a God role and like, we get a, like some biblical overtone stuff mm-hmm. happening. Um, that just like, didn't really work for me as an ending. Um, although the final gag did yeah. work for me <laughs> yeah. of like, the husband learning mediocre Spanish uh, in the car, then oh. followed by uh, Margot Robbie as Barbara slash Barbie walking into the gynecologist. Yeah. Like, that worked, but the scene before it didn't quite work for me. What would have been a satisfying ending? So not that scene, but like what would have what would have wrapped it up in a way that would have felt satisfying? Um, one more joke at Ryan Gosling Ken's expense at the end of Barbie Land storyline smash cut. Uh, we get that like last tiny bit in the real world. Yeah, I could see that. I could see, I could absolutely see that working. I also like, I think this is, uh, to me, this is Greta Gerwig's like bag as a filmmaker, which is that she likes the sentimental moment. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so like, if the option is, if like the choice is there between like one more Ken joke and sentimental moment, she's going to go sentimental moment, you know, like that feels like the, the end of little women, like her version of little women, like I don't love, but it's also the, like, I'm making the sentimental choice. That's also a little bit different than the way the story ends. So it's not exactly the same choice, but like, she's always making the choice for the sentimental moment. That makes sense. I mean, and like, there's, there are couple moments in Lady Bird where one could, I think you could extend that same analysis too, right? Yeah, I think Ladybird is Ladybird is just a little bit more challenging just because it's like literally her life story, right? So like there's there's like less uh room to play around there and the whole thing is a sentimental moment and yeah. then also like Timmy Chalamet. <laughs> Obviously. Um Timothy yeah. Chalamet was missing from this movie. <laughs> We he didn't need have, him. No, we didn't need him. He wouldn't have, he would have taken The cast is that. so fucking good. No, the cast is so good. He would, <laughs> I was trying to think like, okay, where would you have like plugged in Timmy Chalamet or where would you have plugged in Sarsha Ronan? Like Sarsha, I could have, I could have seen as like Skipper. Like that would have been a funny like pull for Skipper. Right. But like Timmy Chalamet, like it would have taken away from the Allen character. Cause yeah, that's like, like the one place I would have slotted him in, but I think Michael Sarah kills it. I had the same thought process and it's like, you need, and this is also partly like, I mean, we're probably about the same age as Michael Sarah, right. Um, or maybe he's a I think you older, are, but, um, uh, like his essential Michael Sarah-ness is so core to Allen's hundred percent. Um, that like, yeah, Shalomay would have been good at it, but like, I wouldn't want that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it would have taken away from the, like, 
the supreme awkwardness of Alan, which is like what's so perfect yeah, about him. And precisely. then when he like beats the shit out of construction. <laughs> I did like, love comes that. Out of nowhere. <laughs> Listen, I loved it. Don't tell Sean Hanley about it. <laughs> <laughs> Would Sean Hanley watch Barbie and enjoy it? No, he wouldn't okay. watch it. It's okay. not one. It's like not like Ice Road Truckers. <laughs> And it's not like a Marvel show or a Star Wars show. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so my other complaint is like a very predictable one about like <laughs> capitalism and neoliberalism and ideology, right? Okay. It's like, can you actually make a film that's going to like boost the uh, market cap and value of the Mattel Corporation by a hundred kajillion dollars? And it's still like maintain some sort of like subversive or resistant edge. And like, Political theorist me wants to say no, even as I really enjoyed the movie. And like, I, I've gone back and forth on the like, you know, the making fun of Mattel itself in the movie, like, has more graded on me than been something I found amusing, which yeah. like we literally talked about, you know, 20 minutes after we saw the movie. Um, you know, I rolled my eyes really hard and you were there to witness it at the like, actually, Barbie is an example of what Zizek talks about with regards to ideology, but like, both and that's not wrong. Um, I'm sorry. I deeply am sorry. Um, so like, so the, there's just the, there's the, there's the capitalism question that's mm-hmm. like looming around in all of yeah. this that like is a political economy question about to film and TV industry that you and I have talked about on several occasions that like is always lurking in the background for me. And like, is I think just not uh, separable from one's engagement with this film, I think, for me. No, I, I, I think that that's fair. The, like, the pushback or the counter that I would offer is, like, okay, so then is the option to just, like, for you to not go see the movie? Like, right? Like, of course what's not. the, like, like, I see the point. I think, like, the the point about, uh, about, like, ideology. I see the point about capitalism. I, like, I think these are all, like, valid points, but I also don't think that, like, political theory is telling us it has to be one or the other. It's telling us, like, think through the complicated relationship between these. Fair. And, yeah. like, mm-hmm. I think, like, maybe that's just another way to think about it, where it's, like, you're absolutely right that you can't de- you can't detach these things from one another, but, like, we can think about, like, the ways in which they complicate each other. Totally fair. Yeah. I think the other thing I, somebody made this point on one of the podcasts and I can't remember who it was, but it's like, okay, if everything is like going like, this is going to make Mattel a bajillion dollars. I'm sure you saw like, now we're getting a Polly pocket movie. Oh, I'm aware. Lena Dunham is directing. And I saw somebody tweet like, uh, I guess she really does like tiny furniture. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's very funny. (laughs) I was like, oh, nailed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, no notes. <laughs> literally none. So, like, yeah, I don't love that. And, like, does everything need to be, like, a cinematic universe? Like, no. And and also, like, there is something. To me, there's always going to be something. There's going to remain something sub- subversive. Like, even if it is making a ton of money. Because at the end of the day, like... All of the like messaging about feminism, all of the like messaging about like 
like finding oneself, all of the like jokes at Ken's expense, like those are things that still are going to reach people that like might not have had access to those things in another aesthetic form. And I think like it's worth appreciating that even if we have to like take that as something positive that comes with all of the sort of like negative neoliberalism, capitalism bullshit of it all too. I 90% agree with that. I I thought you were going to say 99. (laughs) (laughs) Danielle looks like I just like friendship broke up with her. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Where's the 10%? Uh, The like capitalism plus subversion like doesn't compute to me. Yeah, but then, like, nothing can – to me, it's just, like, like – I mean, this, I, I do this is, I agree, but, like, yeah. then then nothing can ever be subversive, and I'm just not willing to live in that world. Fair. And, and I get that, and, like, clearly I am very, very happy to, like, view this thing as an aesthetic object yeah. that has some, like, contestory, like, elements to it. Okay. Um, to patriarchy and, like, a tiny bit maybe even to IP itself um, and, like, enjoying the fuck out of this movie. Listen, I'll take 90. I thought I was getting 99, but I'll take 90. That's that's probably more than I should have expected. So we're running out of Barbie time. So should we like just shout out things we enjoyed about this and then play your challenge and move on? Yes. Okay. Things I enjoyed. Um, My favorite joke in the entire like in the entire movie was there's a point where uh, Kingsley Benadire and Ryan Gosling's Ken like Kingsley Benadire is playing Casio and he like pushes the button to play this like melody on a Casio. I was the only person in our theater that laughed, (laughs) but I called my sister the next day and I was like, Caitlin, like this happened in the movie. And she's like, Oh my God, the, like the melody that you could like push on the Casio. That was like, that was what it would play. I was like, no one else got it. That was my favorite joke in the entire movie. (laughs) It wasn't even a joke, (laughs) but it was though. That's the thing is that like, and this is, what I was talking about, like the sensibility of the yeah. film is that it like, so 5% of the audience will fight, will like view that as a joke. And for those people, it's like a great fucking joke. And I yeah. want like something that it wants to do like witty humor like that. Mm-hmm. that's available to like people on different levels. IE. So like, I'll give, this is not my favorite joke, but it's like the flip side of that, which is a joke that there were not as many Ken's in the uh, theater when we viewed it, but no. like, a joke for Barry was one of the few people laughing at was the Stephen Malkmus joke. I had to have John explain that to me. I was like, I don't know who this is. But also yesterday, John had to explain who my chemical romance was to me. So this is, this is true. That's a that's a harsher look for you than I had than I mansplained Stephen Malkmus to you as we were walking I up the theater. I asked you to mansplain it though. Um, yeah. So the Stephen Malkmus joke was one of my favorites. The Justice League one, obviously. Oh, Justice League. Um, the Matchbox Twenty, like of course. Uh, <gasps> oh my god, Depression Barbie. I, that may, in retrospect, I think that's my single favorite joke. The amount of people who have been like, I felt too seen and it was scary. And then there's like just the flash of Colin Firth. I've never seen that Pride and Prejudice. It's not, Same. that's not like my set of uh, uh, stuff. But like, I I appreciate how far reaching that joke was. Yeah. Um, the horses. Listen, I, when they rolled up on like fake horse jet skis like i i was i 
I was telling John this. I have like a group text with a bunch of friends from grad school and like 70% of that group text is just us trading memes about horses. Sometimes there are beans on it. Sometimes there are eggs. Sometimes like we talk to each other about real things, but mostly this like text chain is just horses. And I was like, oh my God, the patriarchy being about horses is just like that text chain come to life. Mm-hmm. It it's sure amazing. Is. I mean, obviously everyone has said the, the Ryan Gosling can line of like, honestly, when I learned it wasn't all about horses, I became less <laughs> interested it. in the patriarchy or whatever the line was. Love it. Uh, everyone has shouted out, but just the general, and this like speaks to a number of the things we've talked about, like the way that all the horses were weaved into the set design. Everything of the Mojo Dojo Casa House and environs. Um, incredible. Mojo Dojo Casa House is also like such a good name. I don't know why, but it's giving like three ninjas strike back. <laughs> um, I also enjoyed the uh, Birkenstock high heel choice that uh, Weird Barbie gives stereotypical Barbie. For many reasons, A, the specificity of the Birkenstocks, as Danielle, I believe, had Birkenstocks on. I believe I I elbowed you and pointed to them when uh-huh. this when that Correct. happened. Correct, but that's also like a joke at the Matrix, at like in homage and at the expense of the Matrix. I think, uh-huh. yeah, like blue yeah, pill, yeah, yeah. red pill, but like really, there's only one choice, and yeah. you know, besides that, and I appreciated like. Joanna Robinson, she made a Joseph Campbell hero's journey joke that like I literally had prepped for us for this episode. (laughs) And she made it in regards to that choice. We could talk about this forever. We can talk about it forever, but what we're not going to, I'm sure we'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, But I want to, where is one place that you could either pull a scene out of Barbie and put it in a different movie or pull a scene from one of the other movies we saw and put it here? I've got two for you. Okay. And then these are just like things that like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically off the dome. I like remembered we were doing this when you told us 20 minutes ago. So I've been like trying to think of them. Amazing. And I've got two. Um, okay. One is that we are going to take the opening scene, the like 2001 Space Odyssey, and we are going to put it at the Trinity test of Oppenheimer. This was, this was one of mine. So this is great. And we're going to splice it exactly like, so obviously in Oppenheimer, when they do the Trinity test, we get the multiple visuals of the explosion. And then, uh, you know, a minute later, we get the sound, multiple yeah. sound wave booms, which mm-hmm. like gra- latched on to Danielle. Yeah. Like I was a child um, <laughs> in that moment. Um, like, and you, Don't spill and, the Sour Patch Kids. And we're going to, exactly. And we're going to put them right in the middle of the visual in the yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got another one, but what do you got? That was, that was one of mine. The other one that I thought would be, would, <laughs> would be really funny was for Tom Cruise, like the stunt where he jumps off the mountain instead of like crashing into the train, he crashes into like the Mojo Dojo Casa house, but like <laughs> it's in the middle of like the Ken's like doing their Mojo Dojo things. Like I thought that that would be like a, a funny splice to like get Tom Cruise. Like you don't see him, cr- you don't see him land, but like, then you get like Barbie, Barbie and Barbie <laughs> land instead. I love it. I also have a Mojo Dojo Casa house Great. from another movie moment. It's uh, after it's in Oppenheimer and like they're in Los Alamos, but they're in Los Alamos in the Mojo Dojo Casa house <laughs> with like all of our dude bro scientists uh, doing I love science. It. Uh, I love it. I love it. And my only other thought is that I would like a Grace Barbie from Mission Impossible. Yes. 
Well, the other thing I was thinking about is like, it would be really funny if like we got any of this, any of the scenes from uh, the other two movies, like as Barbies, right? So like all of all, like a Grace Barbie or like you get like a version of Tom Cruise running on the top of the the airport, <laughs> but it's a Tom Cruise Barbie running on like a Barbie land airport. Uh, that's I think the best one so far. <laughs> So like like putting those movies into this aesthetic. Amazing. Amazing. Any other performances or actors in like slightly smaller roles you want to shout out from Barbie? I mean, I do want to shout out Chuti Gatwa, who uh, is one of the Kens. He is on one of my favorite shows, Sex Education. Him and Emma Mackey, who's one of the Barbies. She plays physics Barbie, I think. Um uh I thought like both of them did great. And it was so nice to see each of them in like a movie that is not sex education, which is like the primary thing. Shutigatwa is actually like the new doctor in Doctor Who. Um, so that would be exciting to like see him in that. But cool. I'll shout out briefly Issa Rae, who was just great oh. as Issa Rae always is. And I and Hari Neff, like what yeah. a summer for Hari Neff. Like she is in Barbie and she is in the idol. And just like <laughs> that's a the what is it in the rewatchables, the heat check moment, the Dion Waiters heat check award. Surprising no one. I have not seen The Idol. <laughs> <laughs> Literally no one. Literally no one. Uh, should we move on to Oppenheimer? Yes. Okay, I'm going to let you start oh, Oppenheimer God. because, like, y- your your affect, like, both during the movie but then when we walked out, like, feels like it needs to be processed a little bit on, like, on the pod as, like, as our way into this movie. Sure. In a good way. Yeah, I... And my hesitation is that, like, I did find, I get all of the political criticisms, the aesthetic criticisms, the great man history criticisms, the Nolan criticisms, this Christopher Nolan continues, like, women, bah, bah, meh, uh, approach to movies. But, um, like, I did find this movie deeply, like, affecting. I hesitate because, like, I'm ideologically predisposed to a lot of the, like, reactive criticisms to this movie. Mm-hmm. But, like, I also was deeply moved by it at the same time. Um, and so, like, my, like, uncertainty in that, you know, in retrospect, like, channeled through that moment is, like, me trying. That's what I'm trying to process. No, I appreciate that. I mean, like, listen, I... I said this. Did you like this movie? Yeah, I really like this movie. And this is not the kind of movie that I typically like. So like Barbie is so much more my speed, which is like, it's got a little bit of thinking for us to do and like a lot of fun. And then just, it's like a romp, you know, even though there's like some deep stuff like happening at moments in Barbie, it's mostly a romp. You wouldn't call this a romp? No. (laughs) (laughs) no I would not (laughs) um and as I said like I hadn't really seen anything about it I was just excited to see this in part because you were so excited to see it and like the Barbenheimer hype of it all got me excited I actually like I never saw the Dark Knight Rises I haven't I've only seen the Harry Styles scenes of Dunkirk (laughs) That is like one of the wildest things I've ever heard in my life. There's a cut of it on YouTube. I was like, I, I don't need to see no this. I have no doubt about that. Well, like I like war movies are not my thing. So like I remember 1917 came out. This is obviously not Christopher Nolan, but like 1917 came out when I was in grad school and I was like seeing probably a movie a week at that point. And I literally turned to my friend Marcus and I was like, you could not pay me to see that movie. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, 1917 was like, like Dunkirk, it was one of those movies that people were like very excited about the the scale and the scope. And I was just like, I have no interest in this, like none. It's so, pretty good. But so like, I, you know, I've, I've seen the other two Batmans that Nolan did. I've seen Inception. I've seen Interstellar, which I think is a, in terms of a movie, it is like phenomenal. And also it is like the most frustrating thing to watch them just like totally steal the plot of A Wrinkle in Time and make a sci-fi movie about it. It made me so mad. <laughs> did you like Inception? Or do you like Inception? You know, it, it, like, I do. And also, it feels, like, more confusing than it needs to be. And, and, like, that's also fine. I actually really liked Tenet. I saw it. I enjoy Tenet also. In true Andy Greenwald fashion, I saw it on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) I think Tenet is good so long as you don't try to make sense of it. That's a good standard take, but the correct one. But I think that that's also Inception, right? Like the the thing that I and sort of coming out of Oppen. So I I say all this to say, like, I haven't really like been a Christopher Nolan fan, but I also haven't not like been a hater of his I've just been like intrigued by what he's doing and he seems like so tapped into his craft and also like has these stories that always have like some like twist that's confusing and like you kind of have to take a step back and be like let's just let this unfold and Oppenheimer doesn't have that right like Oppenheimer doesn't have the to me it didn't have the same like oh what's the confusing thing or what's the thing we're like trying to figure out or what's the like What's the like piece of like, you know, space or time that we're playing with in in a like generated kind of way or like in a creative kind of way? Like that's actually the whole thing of it. So you can see why Christopher Nolan is like drawn to this figure. Right. And and wanting to make this movie because like he doesn't have to generate the like twist because the twist is like the whole thing that like Oppenheimer is kind of after. Right. Does that make sense? I 91% agree with Oh my with God. <laughs> no, that, that, that's a joke. I, I think that that's a really insightful point. Um, but what I would add on to it is that because he can't restrain himself. And I say that 100% mm-hmm. is a compliment. Yeah. He, his structuring and editing of the film are him trying to introduce like his Nolan stuff, like Nolan director bullshit stuff in a story that doesn't demand that like time space twist other than like, we're fucking around with nuclear physics uh, and nuclear physics and quantum physics. Right. So like the, so like I was, I was confused at first, like what our timeline situations were Uh and stuff like that. Um, you know, for the first 10 minutes or so of the movie. And I really, you know, I get like Amanda Dobbins in particular was like, did not like the last act of the movie. Right. So everything basically after the bomb, when we're several years later, the way that the story was constructed was very Christopher Nolan. And I thought incredibly effective as a viewing experience of a film. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that for the most part. I think I was less bothered by the third act, not just because, like, in general, I'm like, okay, I'm here for three hours, so I'm watching this movie, but also because in the first, like, two hours, I was like, where is this, like, where is this going in Mm -hmm. the, like, 
okay, we're ramping up, we're ramping up the production. Now they're in Los Alamos. Like, okay, like I see what's going on. And it you could feel the pace of the movie like moving towards the Trinity test, obviously, which is not a thing I knew that was gonna happen, but like, you know, like that's where the that's what the pace is doing in the movie. And then I was like, we still have like a full hour like left to go, like, what's this gonna be? And you had gotten these like inserts with the with Downey's character, right? Yeah. Like a few times throughout this, but there it obviously ramps up in the third hour. And so like I really liked that you get this like shift into a whole other mode. I would also say, and again, I am not a Christopher Nolan expert, but like in Interstellar, in Tenet, in The Dark Knight, like, I suspect if we, like, went back to the other ones, both that I haven't seen and also the ones that I have and I'm not remembering, there is always this shift. I went to see The Dark Knight in Israel. It was it came out, like, the first week that I was living in Israel. So I went with, like, friends of mine. We went to the movies. And in Israel, all movies have an intermission, but I didn't speak Hebrew. So they, like, put up the word intermission on the screen. But I didn't speak Hebrew. So I just, like, thought it was done. And where they cut the movie is basically like right before they don't cut it at halfway. They cut it like, you know, a little bit over halfway. And it's like at the moment where the where it's the shift from Joker into Two-Face, right? Like, uh-huh. which is like a thing that happens in Dark Knight. I feel like a lot of his movies have this like, what's the third act going to be? Question mark. Like Interstellar has that too, where it's like, okay like are you are they gonna solve it like and then they do and then like what's happening here right so I don't know I guess I I wasn't as put off by this by everyone else and also like structurally it does feel kind of like you're saying like that's kind of the the like the move into the question mark feels like a move that he's like always kind of trying to do yeah did the great man style of history bother you I mean he's no, because like this is a biography. Like that's what this is. Oh, this is also why usually I would be annoyed about the like representation of women. And I will totally back anybody being like Christopher Nolan does not know how to write women. Like I think that that's right. Again, this is a biography. This is my sister has read the biography. So I was like talking to her about it. This is this is how the wife is written in the biography. Now, do I think they could have done more with it do they have to stick to the biography obviously not because like they're making he's making editorial choices all throughout but like this is how like the experience gets siphoned through like it's being told through the eyes of Oppenheimer like that it's a character study I'm 100% with you on that like (laughs) it didn't I am predisposed to be bugged by that I think like again ideologically and I was not bothered by that in the slightest. And like, maybe that's a flaw in myself or whatever in my politics or commitment to them. But in, you know, this is, I think one of my hotter takes is that thinks kind of strongly. I understand trying to say something about the depths of the threat to humanity and the inhumanity of nuclear weapons through a story that's told entirely from Robert Oppenheimer and other scientists and politicians in America is a problem. Agree. I think Christopher Nolan trying to like do a Hiroshima or Nagasaki scene would have been totally and utterly fucked, made the movie worse, and it would have also been politically quote unquote worse people are like i can't believe that there's no there's no scene of there there are no japanese in this movie and it's like 
yeah, that's actually like true to the experience of Oppenheimer, or at least like that alienation is a thing that you're seeing him struggle with, like throughout the text. And you're like, I don't know, it's it can politically be a a problem that there is that separation. And also it can be the like editorialized version of how a particular person experienced this whole set of events. Right. And I don't think, I think this movie is a vindication of Oppenheimer vis-a-vis the American government. I don't think this movie is a vindication of the dropping of atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I also think like, and I guess this is to your great man question also, which is like, yeah, this is like very obviously like a, like a portrait of a quote unquote great man. And also it is like, a testament to how like no one is ever singular right like and some of that is going to absolve Oppenheimer a a little bit right like because it's going to take or rather it's not absolved but it's going to take the full weight of the responsibility off of like one person's shoulders but it never should have been there in the first place because that's actually not how like decision-making or politics or power functions. So so you're I'm, telling me like butterfly meme is Oppenheimer an assemblage? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in this sense, like the Harry Truman scene actually totally works because yeah. Harry Truman is both an utter and complete fucking amoral, anti-moral asshole yeah. and exactly right to be like, call out the self-torturing of Robert Robert Oppenheimer that I am sure he felt and understandably so as like being a quote unquote crybaby when he is removed, he is at such a distance. He is alienated from the material effects of this. Like I, that worked really well for me. A hundred percent. And that's why like, that's why the critique of like the, there are no Japanese people in this movie. Like that's why like that doesn't hit with me because it's like, Oh, but that misses the like, the alienation in all of these different ways that like was just like seems to be palpable in, in all of these back and forths. What scene is like most going to stay with you or affect you uh, moving forward? Oh, that is a really good question. I honestly think the one that I keep coming back to is um, it's two one is um like Izzy giving Oppenheimer an orange on the train and like making him eat like from the beginning like there's yeah. something like the intimacy of that is, mm. it, like and what we learn about both of those characters like feels really important um even though the scene is kind of like what what is this doing here right but the other a scene great that I scene it's a great such scene. a good scene well and like the other scene that I keep keep coming back to is when Oppenheimer has learned that Florence Pugh's character has like committed suicide slash like been murdered. Yes. And Emily Blunt finds him in the New Mexico wilderness. I don't know like what Mm -hmm. climate, what like terrain that is when she finds him and he's, he's just like, he's beside himself. Yeah. And, and because that is like such an important scene for their relationship and also is like, I think is is telling us something about like his relationship to the US government, right? What about you? Two things. On a scene level, it's 
the speech that Oppenheimer gives after the bombs have been dropped. Yeah. Where he's like in the gym, in the auditorium at Los Alamos um, and like gives this patriotic speech to a like raucous fucking crowd of the like scientists and workers and families of the people of Los Alamos um, in the lab. And like, we should also recognize like, yes, like, people were pushed off of their land with no compensation except to work with chemicals without protection to build Los Alamos. Like that is also true. And that's not in the movie. And again, we could have a similar conversation about that, but that scene um, where he's giving the speech and like almost immediately upon him starting the speech, but not quite immediately. And that makes it better that there's like a 10 second lag from him starting to give this patriotic speech to the like horror and terror of what has happened literally hitting him and then through the way that Nolan and and crew do like the psychic world of Oppenheimer projected onto that audience Mm -hmm. where it's as if there's a nuclear explosion in that auditorium, like a blinding white light, Mm -hmm. the sound goes out except for like the people like stomping their feet and yelling and cheering, but also some like explosion sound effects from the Trinity test explosion. And like, one woman's face starts to be melted off and that's like represented visually. That is like the scene that's going to stick with me the Mm -hmm. most. Yeah. And then the other thing that's going to stick with me is like the most political theory bullshit of the whole movie, (laughs) which is the like theory practice question. Yeah. Which is saturating this fucking movie. Yeah. In so many ways. And like, if I don't know if I'm going to like make, I'm not sure if I'm going to go see this again in theaters or not, but if I were, I would spend more time going in, like trying to clock and catch all of the different like ways that that question gets tossed around vis-a-vis some of the things we've talked about with regards to the film. Yeah, no, I think the theory practice question is like, I mean, like that's at the, that's at the heart of so much of this, right? Which is like, it's at the heart. I think it's like, we're meant to read it as at the heart of the internal conflict of Oppenheimer because he's Correct. someone who's a theorist and, and, and has yeah. been tapped to like put these things into practice. And yep. he's like, because I think he comes from the world of theory, he's like uncomfortable with and not always thinking at least the way that he's presented in this movie, like that the implications of the practice only come later for him. Like the Mm -hmm. recognition of them only come later. And there's something at least to me, like relatable about that. Very, very much so. Do you have a favorite performance? Cause this cast is like a murderer's row. Um, Similar to Barbie, right? Like murderer's row and everyone's doing a great job. I mean, Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt, like, yeah, basically there's no misses anywhere in this cast in the way that they act in this movie. Yeah. Um, But I, you know, if I'm going to pick out two, like those are the two obvious ones, but I'll go with them nonetheless. Like, and like, yes, Emily Blunt's character like gets shit uh, in terms of like what she's able to do. She makes a meal out of that shit. But she does a great job with it. And like, you know, acts the increasing like drunkenness and alcoholism of Kitty Oppenheimer like that quite effectively again yeah. given the limitations of the script that uh she has been that she is acting um so i'd say the two of them what about you 
I'll think of one of the smaller performance, quote unquote yeah. smaller performances I would add. But like, I think those, those two, I think are just, I mean, Killian Murphy is just, like, it's, it's an incredible performance. No, those are great. I would say like the three that, that pop out to me are like Josh Hardnett. Like, I don't know where he's been since he made 40 days and 40 nights, but like he's <laughs> a movie that I loved in college. Um, he's killing it. I like, because his character, like you need, he needs to be really good in that character for it to be an effective kind of like counter and comrade, uh, comrade's not the right word here, but like counter and friend to Oppenheimer. Right. Yeah. Him. Um, I would also say like Florence Pugh. I wish she was in 75% more of the movie, <laughs> like, but I will watch anything that she does. I watch Don't Worry Darling all the time, not just for <laughs> Harry Styles, but for her also. No, but like she's amazing in this movie and she has literally like 17 lines. Yeah. Um, and then I would also say Matt Damon does a wonderful job playing a kind of like burly general. Like he it's it's like it's not a hard part to play, but it's like the tone of it is so different from so much of the of the other performances. You need someone who's as good as Matt Damon to like play. I like I don't know who else could have played that role in particular, even though it's a kind of stereotypical role. Like there's a there's like a gravitas that he brings to it, which like. I think you needed in the midst of like all of this greatness. Correct read. What do you have a random one? Um, Dane DeHaan is Nichols. I think probably. Um, I would say my random one is probably Alden Ehrenreich, right? Like, yeah. Is the Senate aide, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what, what's Han Solo doing in this movie? <laughs> Benny Safdie's weird fucking guy. He did a great job as teller. I kind of love it when Benny Safdie like pops up in a movie. Like uh, it's happening more and more lately, but I'm like, oh, you've got a, like a weird vibe, but it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, in this past winter, when I was back visiting my family, I watched Good Time, the Safdie Brothers movie with yeah, my yeah. dad. Dan McMahon, not a fan of the Safdie aesthetic. Listen, Sean Hanley is not a fan of the Safdie aesthetic. I don't even know if he's encountered it, but I know he's not a fan. <laughs> All right. Should we do your challenge? Yeah. Or do you have more for Oppenheimer? No, I think that's like, that's where Oppenheimer, listen, Barbie is a movie that I'm literally going to go see again on Tuesday with my sister. Um, and Oppenheimer is a movie that I will gladly watch again when it is inevitably on like TBS or TNT, like, and HBO like over and over and over again. Like I find not HBO my... though, right? Like Nolan and Warner are out. Oh yeah. I guess it will be on some other streaming. Yeah. I was not thinking about it as streaming. I was thinking about it as like, like at my parents on the TV. Yeah. But like, you know, stars or Cinemax, sure. or whichever one of those it ends sure. up on. When I saw Interstellar didn't love it. And then like over the pandemic, Interstellar was like on HBO. I was at my parents and I was on HBO all the time and I ended up watching it so much because I also, I actually just really love a space movie. And so I can see, like, I also love like a political intrigue movie and I could see myself rewatching Oppenheimer, like as it is on TV, but I don't know that I'll sit down again for another three hour stint of it. I think I would only see Oppenheimer again if I could, if I was doing it in a theater just yeah. because I I want the scale, I want the sound design in general, but the sound design of the Trinity test in particular. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, okay, let's let's splice some scenes. What are you thinking about this one? Okay, so I've I, I know there's more here, but I'll go with a very obvious one, which is this batshit Oppenheimer Gene Tatlock sex scene <laughs> slash so Bhagavad Gita uh, scene. <laughs> that was extremely my shit. <laughs> same, <laughs> um, and I want to put that in Barbie, and like, but I want I want us to like switch to Barbies. Like color and production, yeah, yeah, yeah. sense of design, yeah. Um, but keep everything else. Naked Killian Murphy and Florence Pugh, we're keeping yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. as humans from the real world in Barbie Land. We're keeping the book. We're keeping the like mid having sex, like hopping off to get the book and then back on. We're keeping. We're all of that. We're keeping, <laughs> keeping all of it. It's just in the Barbie movie in Barbie Land. I'll take it. Mine is like a little bit less fun, but instead of the <laughs> instead of the bridge blowing up in Mission Impossible, it's the Trinity test. Like the train, the train. They're like it's like um, they're on the train, and all of and you know all of a sudden, like the Trinity test happens, and then we're back in the Mission Impossible. So it's like it's it's that. Yeah. If I'm sending something from Oppenheimer out, I do want to also bring something in. And I want uh loose I want Ving Rames in oh, yeah. uh, in Oppenheimer is what I want. Yeah. Who would who from the other cast would I want in Oppenheimer? Hmm. I think that I would Ving Rames is a really good choice. But are we sh- gonna replace Harry Truman with Issa Rae President Barbie? Oh, that would be great. But I was thinking that Shea Wiggum should be in Oppenheimer. Like, <laughs> he feels like he belongs in Oppenheimer. Like, he was missing. Yeah, he is. He could, like, he could be Nichols' partner. Uh, yeah. He could be, like, rat- ratting out make- slash making up charges against Oppenheimer. Like, I know th- I know this was mentioned, I think, by Chris Ryan. But, like, like a really kind of good movie about McCarthyism and the totally. left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of. (laughs) I think the other, just like thinking about like moving characters around, right? Like I think that like Florence Pugh, like as Jean Tatlock, but like in Barbie. So like she's just, she's not not a Barbie, but like she's Jean Tatlock, but like as a Barbie. Yeah. Uh huh. That's the best idea we've come up with so far, I think. We're geniuses. Well, and Um, we can, we can keep my suggestion of that scene it's consistent with your broader vision for Gene Tatlock and Barbie. Exactly. Exactly. I love this. Listen, Barbie needs a little bit more communism, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> like, although then we couldn't make the movie. So yeah, the, like, that was, that was mean. That was, that was, okay. a mean, that was a mean That's dig. The, that 10% that you're, <laughs> you're withholding. Correct. All right. Let's move on to perhaps the, the greatest cinematic masterpiece that we saw. <laughs> Uh, Mission Impossible. Uh, One out seven. of two podcasts host degree. <laughs> <laughs> Mission Impossible, like Mission Colon Impossible. Dash Dead Reckoning Part One. Colon Part One. Great. I think wonderful. that's how it goes. I love it. <laughs> um, I don't even know where to start with this movie because it's like it's on even though Barbie and Oppenheimer are like the tones of them are so different. There is a seriousness with which we can approach 
each of them and which just like to me has to fall away from Mission Impossible. I yeah, I think you're right about that. And I that's like a little bit been my pitch to people who are like, can you really watch Barbie and Oppenheimer together? And I'd say they're so completely different from one another, but as aesthetic projects and occasionally thematically, they converge to actually make it the perfect experience. Mission Impossible also had a great time there, not quite doing the same sorts of stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. Like the convergence of Barbie and Oppenheimer, like Mission Impossible to me, even though we saw them in the in the like opposite order. It was like a 27 hours. We saw all three of them. Yeah, something it was like wild. That. It was a, a best life decision I've made. <laughs> I can't. The best life decision of all of this is like spending that time with you. But like three movies in 27 hours is too many movies for me. Um, but like we, because we saw Oppenheimer last, which was the movie that I was like the most drawn into, John was saying this, uh, when we left the movie that like, I was like, my body was like in this movie. Danielle spent like the final hour 45 of Oppenheimer, like leaning forward towards the screen. It was like really actually kind of cool and remarkable (laughs) to like observe that. I love a courtroom drama. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mission Impossible, like, is a palate cleanser, right? Like, it is exactly the kind of movie I want to see in the middle of July in, like, the middle of a heat wave in a theater. It's like... Air conditioning was not strong enough in that in any of the three movie theaters that's my that's my note is actually to like the movie theaters of massachusetts like (laughs) i get we're concerned about climate change but like turn the air conditioning my usual movie theater is very good about air conditioning yeah no i like this movie like hits a totally different note and so you like i'm glad that we saw it first because like we didn't have to think about it in the same way and i just like i still don't even know if i'm capable of thinking about this then i will pose a question to you okay i'm stealing this question great is ethan hunt jesus (laughs) you had to have known this is where i was going i didn't and i'm deeply annoyed (laughs) no they're not like they're not smart enough about this movie to like be thinking in that direction like i appreciate the read i think it's interesting but like no it's not it's just like like the rock and vin diesel in the fast franchise like written into tom cruise's contract is like his characters can't die that it's not like a oh on a story level we've like constructed this jesus character it's like no i want to keep making money from these moves god i sound like you (laughs) (laughs) mission mission accomplished not impossible mission accomplished well, I feel angry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did love this movie, and now I'll now I'll tell on myself so that like you can claw back some of uh, my haughtiness in this exact moment. Is like, do you want to drag me for enjoying this movie so much when I hate Marvel? I'm, I, I'm opening the floor to you. Listen, I'm too nice to do that. Wow. At least on air, um, <laughs> that's not true at all. Here's here's what, though. Your hatred of Marvel is on an ideological level that actually, like, doesn't always carry through in in practice. Like, you are, like, inside you, there are two wolves. There's the wolf that... <laughs> if Marvel... Like, Mission Impossible is a great example of this, right? Like, if Marvel movies weren't Marvel movies, you wouldn't hate them as much as you do. And this is like a thing that is like, I was thinking about this because I was listening to the watch episode on secret invasion, which I thought was like a really good conversation and like had a lot of good stuff to say about the thing that they, I think missed. And the thing that is, is really important is like 
the thing that's happened with Marvel is like there's this weird sort of economy of expectation and um and like literally nailing every single thing so that the minute that one little thing and then like a million things don't work it's like it's the end of the world and there are five million things that do not work in Mission Impossible 7 and still it is a great time so it's like it's not that I want to like make fun of you or like drag you for not liking Marvel and for liking this movie but it like it's completely consistent with who you are as a person and like the the way that you understand aesthetic choices like within the broader like living of your life i love that <laughs> like i accept all of that it's about not, myself yeah like i don't know it's like of course you like this movie because like you like to have a good time and if we took like the marvel label off stuff like then you're capable of having a good time with it, which is effectively what Mission Impossible is. Like Tom Cruise's character should have died 17 times over and like didn't. He's just a superhero without like formal superpowers, except that like he does have superpowers because like he's got this like, you know, but like no perfect budget, running form, like perfect running form, no budget can always get out of things like. He's a superhero in, in, in everything but name. We literally have masks. Although the mask machine breaks down oh as a symbol God. of the breaking of the Marvel political film economy. I mean, it's like, <laughs> listen, this is like a thing. This will be the last Marvel thing that I say, but like the thing that drives me nuts is people are like, oh, the movies in this phase are like so much worse. And it's like, have you watched like Thor the Dark World? I love that movie, but it is trash. The storytelling is trash. The choices are trash, but it's a good time. It's only redeemed because like Infinity War and Endgame are such an accomplishment that like they rewrite the story of that movie. Like there are plenty of trash choices being made all the time. IP is full of trash choices. Comics are full of weird choices. Like everybody like relax. <laughs> sorry <laughs> i'm sorry for dragging us to back on our bullshit when we're supposed to be celebrating how good a time we had watching this movie the best why did we have a good time watching this movie because it's so ridiculous like <laughs> because like it is just like action set piece after action set piece and like six words in between each one and like I'm happy to watch like every action set piece like in this movie the i thought the honestly like the most disappointing part of this movie is the stunt that like we've been hearing about but i didn't even care because like one the payoff of that crashing into a train was really shocking and so i loved that (laughs) and two the thing that happens after tom cruise motorcycles off a mountain and like free falls off a mountain which seems horrifying to me and like cannot believe he did that in real life Fine. Like I think nine times. Like so, (laughs) I will say I agree with Danielle that like the stunt is fifteenth most impressive thing that happens on the screen. But the like nine minute featurette that they made about that stunt is like as good as anything in the movie itself. Yeah, but then like the thing that's so crazy about it is we've been hearing about the stunt for like ever, and then you get this. The next set piece is is Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell like jumping through the train in and every car has like a whole set of different obstacles. Like that was great. I I could watch that for an hour. <laughs> so, and then he just like, he just leaves. He's back with Benji. 
in the self-driving car, which feels like that not a good hilarious. idea with <laughs> you turn to me and you're like the AI. And I was like, no, these are bad choices. <laughs> but yeah, I think that we enjoyed it because like, it's so ridiculous, which is exactly what a mission impossible impossible movie like should be. Yeah. And like, they're, they understand the purpose of the movie differently, but like the cast is giving their all to the ridiculousness yeah. and to different ends. And I'm, and I've actually, that actually like the light friction of that I think works like who's in on the joke. Who's not in on the joke is a in fun game to play. Yeah. Um, but like, it doesn't matter. Everyone's working well together. I think like casting is great. Like casting again, everyone, you know, great performances, like literally all around. Um, Haley Atwell is a great addition to like this crew. I mean, I would say like my biggest criticism of the movie, and this is not an original criticism, is like I don't like the way that Rebecca Ferguson's character like gets offed. Like, yeah. but like on the one hand, it feels like a, you know, a standard case of fridging. On the other hand, it, it also feels like it does work within the context of the movie. And like you get this really good scene between this is one of my favorite scenes where like Bing Rames is like, uh, are you going to be able to not kill him? Because like you're so pissed about this and you like you get this moment of like, oh, right, right, right. Like there's other stuff at work here. So like you don't have that without like without Ilsa Faust dying. I think the only other way you get it is like Benji dying. Like, right. Like it's one of the, like only, only one of those two actually like works. Yeah. I agree with your point that it makes perfect aesthetic sense within the film. Yeah. But like, I, like, I don't like the fact that they kill her off. It feels like they could have made other choices to like figure to get to that point. But like, again, it's like, it's, it's like aesthetically consistent. Yeah, this was a very funny movie. Not to the dads, but to Not us. Not to the dads. We were laughing the whole time. The dads, I felt their, I felt them glaring at us, even though they were sitting like parallel and we couldn't see them. Yeah. Um, yeah, Danielle and I were laughing and laughing with one another so many times during this movie. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like what was like, what were some of those funny moments? Just like all of it. Just <laughs> all of it. Like the... And again like it's just it's such a ridiculous movie it is and, other, and I also enjoyed the meta-ness of like as Tom Cruise thinks he is single-handedly saving the film industry and Hollywood that the against you know whatever that the and the villain in this movie is the entity the AI <laughs> like and then the AI is channeled via Gabriel um oh my Gabriel God. just out here trust falling off the bridge onto a truck bed Listen, I have like serious issues with them just like walking around on the top of a train that's going like a bajillion miles per hour. Like because he took the brakes out. Yes. But like, have you ever tried to walk on a train? Like, no, (laughs) that just feels like brakes. Even if the brakes were still there, it just feels like this is not a thing that people should be able to do. Like. I, I would be slip sliding all over the place. Like, like, and there's nothing to hold on. And then Gabriel has got those knives and he's just like, he's like free climbing up a train with knives, like <laughs> knives that like, that like come out. So also like there's, st- it just like, it doesn't make any sense, but you have to just be okay with it making no sense. I feel like one of the places where we looked at each other and laughed was when the scene where Tom Cruise realizes that it's the entity that's throwing the party. And- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also like the plot of this movie is literally just the plot of Avengers Age of Ultron, where like 
Hot take. <laughs> Tony Stark and Bruce Banner make some AI, and then the AI like gets evil and then tries to kill everyone. That's the plot of this movie. Yeah. That's the plot of Ultron. Find the difference. It's it's literally the Leo pointing meme or like the Spider-Man pointing meme at each other. Like it's n- like there's nothing creative about the plot, but like the execution of it all, like I like I'll watch it for days. I yeah. love these movies. I think we both like really appreciated Palm Clementine in this movie. Oh, she's so good. I she mean, better be alive in the next one. Maybe. I mean, we're we're gonna like recreate this reunion next summer for part two if it comes if it comes out next summer, right? Listen, I'll come to Plattsburgh and we can go to Cumberland, Cumberland 12. Twelve. I'm opposed to free advertising, but like I will advertise the shit out of Cumberland Twelve, <laughs> the nation's number one independently owned and operated movie theater, according they to really, Cumberland Twelve. They ever Danielle's really, been there. I have been there. They ever we saw listen, we saw fucking Black uh, Widow. Black Widow there, which is like our the or it's like John's villain origin story. It's also this podcast. <laughs> podcast villain yeah, origin it, story. It absolutely is. And it's like the origin story of a paper that we just that we are in the process <laughs> of writing for um the second volume of Marvel Cinematic Universe and politics. <laughs> yeah, if you yeah, if you are listening to this podcast and listen to any of the Marvel stuff last summer, you will be shocked to find that I rewatched I, it feels like 17 times uh Loki so that we could write about a Gombin and Loki. And also, John started out that project being like, I just, to Nick, who's one of the editors who's been on this pod, who's on uh, one of our MCU, uh, one of our MCU episodes for Moon Knight. Um, But he said to Nick over email, like, is it okay if I just like bring the haterade or some version of that? And Nick was like, yeah, of course. And then there's like literally no haterade in our entire paper. There's more haterade towards a gombin than to Loki. As there should be. (laughs) But this is like, this is exactly my point about like, not it's not like I don't need to drag you for for not liking the MCU and for liking this stuff because at the end of the day like this when, is better <laughs> at the end of the day when you strip it down it's all doing exactly the same thing and you do have the ability at least to some degree to to enjoy the MCU stuff too enjoy is a verb um that one can say <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're giving Mission Impossible a short shrift, but I know that you have a hard out that we are quickly coming up upon. Yeah, I think it's okay to like give it a little bit of a short shrift, if for nothing else than like there isn't, I there isn't like as much to talk about in this movie. Like, yeah. there's a lot that happens, but also like absolutely nothing happens, and it's part one of a part two. But I, I think what I what I would say is that like. I am predisposed to use a word that's apparently my word of the day to like not like this movie. And I had a wonderful fucking time. I don't know. It's interesting that you think of yourself as predisposed because like I actually walked in being like, in order for you to, to see this movie, you already have to like put that to the side. Yes. Correct. Right. Like, so you're, you're going in being like, I'm making the conscious choice to like, enjoy this. I would agree with you on that one. And and I think like this is my Marvel point is like you make a conscious choice not to enjoy them. I. John. John. Se- semi. Semi the case. Somewhat true. I think like maybe the first time you watched Loki that was like kind of at work. But like by the time we got to Moon Knight you were like I will hate this every single minute that I am like watching and thinking and talking about this. And conveniently for me, Moon Knight lived up to my expectations. <laughs> Moon Knight was not that bad. What scenes are we transporting uh 
in Mission Impossible. I personally would like to just put Tom Cruise running um, alongside the tandem bike of Barbie and Ken. I would also <laughs> like to put Tom Cruise running um, into the Strauss, everything. Oppenheimer, everything, Strauss, Oppenheimer, uh, Einstein scene at the lake at IAS. <laughs> I would like to just have him running very quickly in the background <laughs> I feel like the best like Tom Cruise running is like, right. Isn't there like a scene, this is before they go to Los Alamos where they're like still in Berkeley where one of the students like runs in, um, to the lab. I, like, I feel like that's the, like, I want Tom Cruise to be running there or like, I want Tom Cruise to be the Einstein Strauss, like, uh, Oppenheimer is a, is a great one. But the other, like, Tom Cruise running is, like, I want him to be running, like, from one, like, part of the Trinity test to the next part of the Trinity test. Like, from, <laughs> oh, the from, different observation from, like, areas. Base camp to, nice. like, nice. East or whatever. Like, I want, like, I want that, like, <laughs> that in there. <laughs> yeah. I'd also like to put Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Strauss, uh, like, in the last hour of the movie into the like safe house with all of the mission impossible characters yeah. before they do the tr- the train mission. Yeah. Or like to make for there to be like a, an interrogation scene that's like the Oppenheimer trial scene <laughs> <laughs> and like that, but it's like Tom Cruise is sitting there or like maybe H- Hilly Atwell as, um Vanessa Kirby like that (laughs) that character yeah um I'm trying to think if there's like a scene in Barbie I think there's one in particular there's we have Dr. Barbie like quote-unquote healing Ken right at the beginning (laughs) I think that like we bring Dr. Barbie to help Ethan I think it would be really funny to like have any of the Mission Impossible scenes, but like with the Barbie dolls, like as actual dolls, but like specifically the ones where they take the mask off, like having a Barbie (laughs) doll in a mask seems like a really funny, like weird play. It does. I also want to add Margot Robbie's stereotypical Barbie to the tiny yellow car that Ethan Hunt and Grace are in (laughs) um, as well, just because of the whole proportion business. Well, and I also then want to see that car in Barbie Land. Back in Barbie Land. Right? Like, yeah. And, but, but with the Barbies, like Margot Robbie and uh, Ethan and I forget Haley Atwell's character name. Grace. Grace, thank you. Like them in the proportion size, but like in the Barbie aesthetic. <laughs> yes. What? And I'm just going to keep going. Ilsa Faust, Rebecca Furbis, Resurson dies and is rebirthed into Barbie Land. Amazing. Amazing. But it's like Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, that's playing with her. So she's now like gotten all of his like weird, angsty, non-angsty stuff. Creepy. Um, John literally just shuddered. Like his body like shuddered. Um, And I think we need to bring Alan into Mission Impossible. Oh, yeah. Alan. I want Alan at the party in Mission Impossible. Perfect. <laughs> or like Alan is the entity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Both. Both. A true bull fan. Yep. Oh my God. Have we come to the end of these segments? We have. 
I think it's time to go to the cave. We haven't been in the caves yet? We're always already in the always cave. Always already in the cave. What do you got for us? You know, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this one? I My brain is like in 17 different places right now. I got two thoughts. Okay. I don't think us. you're going to like either of them. I, can, I can't imagine that I will. <laughs> um, Because this is Total Cinema Baby. Yeah. I would like to take uh, Gilles Deleuze down to the cave with us and like his writings on cinema and the time image and duration and Bergson and all of that, because I think there's something about uh, Deleuze on film and are just like pure giving ourselves over to total cinema baby. Yeah. Um, that like is working on an affective, like duration sensation Bergson level. And I think like Deleuze would help bring that out for us. So I'm going to take Deleuze down into the cave with us to only further enhance our enjoyment of the pictures on the wall that are these movies. Honestly, I don't hate that. I feel like you think I hate Deleuze. And it's I just, do. I hate, I think that Deleuze bros are, or like Deleuze and Guattari bros are annoying. But I actually like Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari. I, I like them. Um, and this is a good choice. I think I would add to it and bring, and with a little, with something a little bit more contemporary and bring like um, Lori Marceau, her new work is on like cinema yeah. and directors. And so she has this piece um Lori on Chantal like a, Ackerman, right? Yeah, on Chantal Ackerman, but thinking about camera work as mother work and 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 like sort of the what the female gaze. And so I think like of course there's like something very like there's a link to Barbie in obvious ways, but I think it would be interesting to think like to think Marceau along with Deleuze, like with all three of these movies. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't thinking in that direction. I guess like the other place where I like, where my brain is, is like in some of this affective stuff, right? Like John and I have been working on some other, uh, some other projects that like, Danielle more than I, but yes, I mean, both of us, some of us just don't have as extensive existing notes as others and need to aggressively go back to this literature. <laughs> Yeah, and I've had to give a lot of time to Pope Lenny this summer as well. It's Listen, been an it's, obstacle to other things. It's not a bad way to spend the summer. Agreed. But I was thinking like in terms of, and this is like, I was reading today, I was reading Kathleen Stewart's Ordinary Affects. And there's like, this book has so much about like the event and the scene and like intensities and just like, and the, there are like modes of disruption. And so I was thinking about how, like on the one hand, we might think about these movies in relation to their like event status, right? But then also like the sort of affective like bubbling up that is performed within the films, but also like as part of the audience that like the the sort of like the link between affect and audience and the the experience of going to see these movies feels like something worth tapping into. And I think maybe Kathleen Stewart helps us do a little bit of that. I love that. I have a worse cave companion. <laughs> Great. Plato. Yeah. Because Plato gives us uh like gives us some like philosopher king questions, mm -hmm. philosopher queen questions that are relevant for Barbie and Oppenheimer and let's say the entity as well. There's like all sorts of mimesis questions we could ask of these various yeah. films like on plot levels, but also as aesthetic objects that I think would be available to us. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, you know, we'll, we'll bring our, our guy Plato with us. 
Yeah, I mean, the only other one, I lo- listen, I love Play-Doh in the Cave. I would do yeah. Play-Doh in the Cave every single time. Same, yeah. Um, I think the only other one is like, and this is, I think, more Barbie than anyone else, although I do think the like, what happens in the other films, like, come could come back to this, but like, thinking a little bit with Ahmed and like, the feminist killjoy, right? Yeah. Like. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, this was, I was thinking about when we were talking about Barbie, like it would be interesting to think this text alongside like uh, the Killjoy manifesto or to think Barbie alongside the Killjoy manifesto. But then it would be interesting then to like bring how Ahmed understands like what constitutes feminist work to the other two films and to sort of think them alongside one another. Yeah, I would, I would, that would, I mean, you know, we, I think made an Ahmed joke yeah, to yeah, one yeah, another yeah, yeah, yeah. mid Barbie movie. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm here for that as well. Listen, I feel like we could do this for the next 16 hours. Yeah, I I threatened Danielle with a seven hour podcast, so you know we're <laughs> that that we're in one hour 47 minutes is like honestly one of our greatest accomplishments. Don't usually take credit for this kind of stuff, but I put us on a strict time schedule. You did, um, and we slash. Do it. The rest of the Hanley family helped in that regard. Listen, my sister has texted me while we've been here being like, what's your ETA? We're trying to figure out dinner. <laughs> so you're, d- you're done. You got two more minutes. And then... I said, well, this 10 minutes ago, I was like 10 more minutes. <laughs> cool. Perfect. We did it. We did it. Yeah, we did it. Listen, total cinema, baby. I would say like, I think the way to end this episode is what what's your ranking? Like, where's the one, two and three in, in the ranking question? So I pass. I this is my this is my last cave contribution is Bartleby I'd prefer not to oh that's good that's good I Barbie is like far and away the winner for me in in this and then like and Oppenheimer is a close second and then and then like I really enjoyed Mission Impossible but it's like not on the same level who won the podcast Danielle me for (laughs) like trashing your MCU nonsense (laughs) I'd agree only because you prefaced trashing it by saying, I'm not going to drag you for this and then proceeding <laughs> and then to do that for 15 minutes. So I, I, I will, uh, ascend with that. And decision. I'll be editing it. And so I'm going to take that 15 minutes and put it in the front <laughs> the of beginning. the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> like I, John just taught me how to splice things. So get ready for that. Take out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should just do it twice. You put it in the in the front and then leave it also in the back. Like leave it and where then, it was naturally. And, and also over I'll the insert it. Yeah. Also I'll insert at the end like uh hey, it's me, Micah. <laughs> First time caller, long time long time first time. Uh could you play that um <laughs> You're, that, I mean, that you're, clip again where Daniel Hanley just expertly buries <laughs> that other guy with his nonsense <laughs> MCU takes. Um, yeah. And you know what? Like, honestly, you have a few Hanleys available to you at the moment. You could ask them to fake record a call. Like, you know, there's nothing stopping you. It's really true. Yeah. Maybe that's how Sean Hanley makes it on the pod. <laughs> I would love that. I have more than a few Hanleys. I have <laughs> Hanleys and I have Young. My aunt's here, too. <laughs> nice. I love that. Um, all right. I think I think that's enough, Danielle. <laughs> yes. That's great. I don't know when this is going to drop, so I don't yeah, know Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about you. it off air. Um, there'll be... There'll be young Pope. There'll be more young Pope soon, no matter what. Yeah, more young Pope. Stay tuned for more young Pope from John and Regan and some guests sometimes. 
stay tuned for maybe, and maybe you already caught it, but maybe you need to catch up. John and producer Amy on like the one percent takes yeah, yeah. that they've got uh-huh, going uh-huh. on. Love it. At some point we'll so get back to. At some part. point we'll get back to the Americans. Yeah. but we, we can't have to write a paper we first. Write our paper. But you know what? Last time we said that, I don't think we stuck to it, and nor did it work help us get our paper done when we said so. You know. No, we didn't say it last time. We and. We didn't say it in the same way. We did say we're not going to meet up and get tattoos, and then we had to make the plan to get the tattoos, so. Okay, fair. Yeah. So thanks, Producer Amy. Yeah, thanks, Producer Amy. Um, And we'll see you next time on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Or is it a movie podcast? Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.